We've all seen car chases, fistfights, and people jumping out of exploding buildings. These things are normal in the movies. But when a car crashes during an action scene, who's actually in the driver's seat? Is it the actor who's playing the character? Not likely. Today we hear from Gary Kent, a man you've probably seen on the big screen but didn't realize it. This episode of Kava was recorded in a restaurant, so please forgive the background noise. Gary's here to talk about being a stuntman, the person who performs dangerous or difficult tasks in place of actors, and the camera never knows the difference. So Jack Nicholson was just getting started, and they said he's looking for a stuntman, so I said, I'm a stuntman. So they hired me. Gary has been part of the stunt industry since before there were stunt schools. In the 40 years he's worked in film, Gary has worked with Jack Nicholson, Penny Marshall, Alan Arkin, James Kahn, Bruce Willis, and Gary Marshall. Those are just a few. On this episode of Kava, we learn all about Gary Kent's filmmaking career and how he got tied up in a historical event that no one would have ever expected. On June 7, 1933, in Walla Walla, Washington, Arthur and Iola Kent became the proud parents of a baby boy they named Gary. Gary Kent grew up to be quite an athlete. After graduating from Renton High School in Renton, Washington, Gary went on to the University of Washington, where he was on the football team and pole vaulted on the track team. While in college, Gary studied journalism. After college, Gary joined the Naval Air Corps, where he wrote publicity and promotion for the Blue Angels. And then in 1959, he moved to Hollywood to become an actor. California, here I come, right back where I started from, where flowers, the flowers bloom in the spring, each morning that dawning bird is singing and everything, a sun kiss, miss head, don't be late, that's why I can hardly wait, open up that golden gate, California, here I come. When I started in stunts, I went to L.A. to be an actor. And all the actors were out of work. And I thought, no, that's not for me. I want to work. And uh, I had heard about these guys called stunt people. So Jack Nicholson, who was just getting started, was going up to Utah to make two westerns. And they said, he's looking for a stuntman. So I said, I'm a stuntman. Luckily, they hired me. I went up to Utah, and when we were there filming the Daniel, I was just falling on the ground. I didn't know. You take it up, and you wear pants, and rubber guns. So uh, the Daniel Boone company came up to shoot, and, and they had four of the best stuntmen in the business. And they wanted one more, but they didn't want to send back to California. So Nicholson said, I've got a great stuntman. He doesn't use pants. He doesn't use They said, send him over. Send him over. So they sent me over to Daniel Boone. And after they made a lot of fun of me and put me through the ropes, they started teaching me what it was all about. And in those days, 
there were no stunt schools where you could go and study how to do stunts. It was pretty much you'd better earn, you know, meet a stunt guy and carry his bag for him for nothing for a little while until they trusted you enough to give you a gag. A gag being a stunt. A gag would be a job and a gag would be the stunt. So, uh, yeah, there were no stunt schools and it was like being hired by somebody that knew and trusted you and then you became part of this great brotherhood, sisterhood kind of thing. Gary did his very first stunts for Jack Nicholson in Ride in the Whirlwind and The Shooting, directed by Monty Hellman. Some other directors he's worked with have been Peter Bogdanovich, Brian De Palma, and his favorite, Richard Rush. I did a picture called Psycho for my favorite director, Richard Rush, and it starred Jack Nicholson, Bruce Dern, and a bunch of other people. But I got to act in it, I got to play a bad guy, and I got to act with Jack Nicholson. And I also did the special effects, a lot of firework, and that was again before CGI, so it's real fire. For other Richard Rush films, Gary doubled Jack Nicholson in Hell's Angel on Wheels and The Savage Seven. Fortunately for Gary and his genre, the drive-in saw its peak in popularity in the late 1950s and early 1960s, adding 4,000 drive-ins across the United States. During that same period, in 1960, Sony had developed a portable 8-inch television and sold over 4 million sets. This created a market for a small-budget film. Yeah, the thing that happened, was lucky for us, was television. So mom and dad kept the kids home to watch TV, and the drive-ins had no product. And the studios major avoided the drive-ins, and it was sort of down thing. So they were looking for product, and it gave a chance for all these young filmmakers to get their films made and, and distributed. The feeling was that if you had a camera and some friends, you could make anything happen. In a way, that's kind of similar today because of the change in equipment. Right. If you've got $10, you can go run a camera and go shoot a movie. doesn't mean it's going to be good or you can get it shown, but you can shoot one. And that was kind of the feeling then that, that the, all the outlaws were running around making movies. Good, but they gave us a fun The films made during this time were groundbreaking. There were no rules. Films tested the limits of what a film could be. For the first time in history, this was seriously analyzed as an art form. But as Gary dove further into this brand new world, he encountered something he'd never expected. In 1953, a dairy farmer named George Spahn purchased a 55-acre ranch in Los Angeles County, California. The ranch became known as the Spahn Ranch and became a location for Western-themed movies and television shows, including The Lone Ranger with Clayton Moore, Duel in the Sun, and a few episodes of the television show Bonanza. Gary, too, worked on films at the Spawn Ranch. It was great because uh, you got off the studio a lot, 
So it's kind of like going on location in a way. Mm. The lunches would be catered, the breakfast <laughs> catered, which is only three food. Uh, but yeah, Corganville, Iverson Ranch, which was right across the street from the Spawn Ranch. Uh, there were no TV antennas, no light poles or anything. So you could shoot westerns or films from the 20s or 30s without worrying about it. Uh, you'd load up big trucks full of equipment and stuff and haul your butt out there to shoot. But, uh, but again, it was a great experience to get away from those big studio gates George Spahn was 80 years old and going blind, living on his ranch when he met a family that he allowed to exchange labor for rent. One of the members of the family, Lynette Squeaky Fromm, said of him, I was impressed with George Spahn's hardiness. He was 80 years old. And although his blindness had for five or six years kept him in a world apart, he was mentally still present, living alone and working through all the frustrations of having lost authority in the running of his own business. This family came supposedly to help him with daily chores and the horse rental business, which was his main source of income. Gary Kent was filming at Spawn Ranch when he met this family and George Spawn. According to Gary... All was not as it seemed with the family's agreement to work for rent. George was always sitting, sitting at a table. You'd go to his house. My production manager's a lot, so I would have to go to George Spahn and make arrangements for us to shoot there. You'd walk in his house, and the minute you went in, the smell would just kill you. Oh. There'd be rats everywhere, and old food all over the table, and George would be sitting there with a cup of coffee, blind, being up the price, or trying up it for shooting all the time. Uh, but again, he just lived. He didn't know it, because he couldn't see it. But his house was just a rent's nest of mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Spawn couldn't see that this family wasn't owning up to their end of the deal. While filming at the ranch, Gary spent some time with the family and their mysterious leader, Charlie. My interaction with Charlie, although I would see him hanging around a lot, uh, I didn't know who he was. But we were using a dune buggy that belonged to my buddy, Bud Gordo, was a camera car. And it broke down, and I needed to get it fixed. I was a production manager. So I asked uh, Patricia Krenwin, one of the girls, we hired them as extras sometimes. I said, I need to find a good mechanic, you know. And she said, yes, uh, we got a great mechanic. And she brought over Charlie Manson. Gary didn't know it at the time, but this was the Manson family. Not related by blood, but tied together as a religious cult led by Charles Manson. So I met Charlie and I said, I need this dune buggy fix. And he said, I can fix it, but I need $70 up front. So Bud gave him $70. 
we can, I just saw him as this little guy. He didn't have these big, scary eyes or anything. He was just a little chocolate. And uh, we came back the next day and it was not fixed. So I said, get me Charlie. And they went and brought Charlie over and I said, Charlie, we better fix this pizza right away or what Carlos is going to scream you a new angel. Not what I said, but it's uh, So he got under the picture right away. And that was my uh, my meeting with Charlie. Spawn Ranch is where Charlie Manson and his gang hung out. He was kind of down. She had a little dilapidated, like, like George Spawn. But it was just fun shooting here. Spawn Ranch was about to become the site of a dramatic series of events. Events which had already happened as Gary was meeting Charles Manson, but that wouldn't come to light for some time. These events would become the stuff of history and even recent films. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, released in 2019, features the characters of Charles Manson, George Spawn, and a character partially based on Gary Kent, who is played by Brad Pitt. There were various people working at Spawn Ranch during this time, one of whom was a ranch hand named Donald, or Shorty Shea. Shorty Shea was a stuntman at the Spawn Ranch. He wasn't really a stuntman, but he wanted to be. He had this stunt. Chuck was talking about him today. He would, when the real stuntmen were there, he'd say, hey, I've got a stunt I bet you won't do. And we would say, well, it's a lot of <laughs> watch this, and he'd tie a rope around his neck and then get a horse and tie a rope around the saddle. And he'd throw a rock at the horse, so the horse would chase and drag him by the neck. Stood. And I said, Damn right, I don't do that. <laughs> Who would do that? While Gary and his crew were working on their film, the Manson family was moving in the shadows. Before long, people started to disappear. Gary had no idea what was happening until it was too late. We found out, not lost, because at that time when I hired him to do the food bucket, they had already done it. Mm. Oh, they had? Yeah, we shot their servants, so we had no idea. They were getting ready to move out mm. to the Barker Ranch at that time, but the murders had already happened. We hadn't known. Except Shorty Shade, the stunt guy who got dragged yeah, yeah. by the neck, had disappeared. <laughs> and we were all like, what happened to Shorty Shade? We did not know that Charlie had killed Shorty Shade. Most people know the Rosemary Lampianca and, and uh, her husband, and Sharon Tate, is all been murdered, and most people know that. But also, Shorty Shade, this wonderful guy who wanted to be a stuntman, had been cut up, his head severed, parts of his body thrown down the well. We found out years later what had happened. What happened to that great guy, Shorty Shade? Wow. Uh, yeah, he was one of the victims. On August 8, 1969, Charles Manson sent four of his followers to a house on Cielo Drive in Los Angeles, California. These four were known in the Manson clan as Tex Watson, Sadie Mae Glutz, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Katie Krenwinkel. They were instructed to destroy everyone in the house as gruesomely as they could. Why? Well, as it turned out, Charles Manson was an aspiring musician, and a music producer had refused to give him a record deal. Manson was furious. And this producer, Terry Melcher, 
just so happened to have lived at Cielo Drive. However, when the Manson family arrived at the house, Terry Melcher was nowhere to be found. The new inhabitants of the house were film director Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate, who was expecting a baby. Polanski was away from home at the time, and the young actress had invited her friends over for the evening. Coffee heiress Abigail Folger, Polish writer Wojciech Rakowski, and celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. The Manson family accomplished what they set out to do. They claimed five victims that night. The four inside the house were brutally murdered, and so was Stephen Parent, a friend of the property's caretaker. By the time Gary started producing films at Spawn Ranch and met Charles Manson, this had already happened, and the ranch was serving as a safe house for the Manson family. On August 9th, the day after the original murders, Manson took his family out on another drive. He considered several different victims to follow the previous day's murders. He eventually settled on Lino LaBianca, a supermarket executive, and his wife, Rosemary. By the end of the weekend, seven people had been brutally murdered. The Manson family wouldn't be arrested until October of that year, more than two months after their crimes, and after they had also killed Shorty Shea at Spawn Ranch. Until the murders were discovered, Charlie Manson and his followers would simply remain a mysterious and seemingly harmless family to Gary. The Manson murders inspired a quirky, fascinating movie, which won multiple Golden Globes this year. The director, Quentin Tarantino, rewrote the year 1969, imagining a world where Hollywood celebrities and hippies crossed paths and destinies. Only later in the film do we realize that these are characters from the real-life tragedy. Sharon Tate, Charles Manson, and the rest of the Manson clan are mingling with Tarantino's fictional characters, and the victims are not who we expect them to be. One of these not-so-fictional characters, Cliff Booth, is a rough-and-tumble stuntman from old Hollywood. You guessed it. He's based on our very own Gary Kent. The movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood features a scene at the Spawn Ranch in which the stuntman character gets in a fight with Tex Watson. Brad Pitt plays the character based on Gary Kent, and this year Pitt took home the Golden Globe for supporting actor in a motion picture. I like Brad Pitt. I thought he was spot on. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, did. I loved it. And they have a really good recreation of the Spawn Ranch. Spot on. Except George Spawn's house wasn't up on that little block of the Spawn level ground. And the steps going up to a little porch, you didn't go up the top to get in. And Jeff Watson was not a horseman. He didn't go near a horse. They had him galloping around once upon a time. But that was not that. Tex was just weird and crazy. He walked around all the time. Quentin Tarantino's movie has been a favorite during this year's award season. Not only did Brad Pitt win a Golden Globe, but he has also been nominated for an Oscar award for the best supporting actor in this film. The film also won a Golden Globe for best screenplay of a motion picture. 
the cast and crew have been nominated for several Oscars, including Tarantino for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, Leonardo DiCaprio for Best Actor in his role as Rick Dalton, and Robert Richardson for Best Cinematography. Tarantino's surprising, nostalgic recreation of this historical moment has sparked a lot of conversation among critics and audiences. Gary admires Tarantino's vision, which reminds him of the golden days of filmmaking. Quentin Tarantino, a pal of mine in a way, said, forget film school, go get on a film. And in a way, he's right, because film school doesn't really teach you how to make a film. They teach you sort of the gymnastics, but the actual making of a film and net grit you can only get by doing it. Despite this unfortunate incident, Gary's career soared in the following years. He not only continued in stunt work, but also acted and directed films. He directed The Pyramid in 1976 and Rainy Day Friends in 1985. He ultimately retired from stunts in 2003, following an accident on the film Bubba Hotep, directed by Don Coscarelli. Looking back on his work as a stuntman, Gary is proud of what he's accomplished. His stunts have been nothing short of breathtaking. He's been dragged behind a pickup truck, thrown from a horse, and had several broken bones and other injuries. He fondly remembers making Psych Out with his favorite director, Richard Rush. And I did a great car hit where I get hit by a car and bounced off into a truck and then off of the truck over the hood of another car and crashed my head on the concrete. When I see that stunt, I, I go, I don't believe I did. But I'm very proud of it. As Gary once told the Austin Chronicle, however, the golden age of the stuntman may now be over. With the introduction of CGI, or computer-generated imagery, there's no longer a need for stuntmen to put themselves in danger. Filmmakers can create the illusions all on a computer. There's a great writer named Gene Freese who says that just getting into the stunt business is worth noting. And thriving in the stunt business is worth major attention. And surviving is a miracle. Doing stunts in a motion picture is like being in an alley fight, inside a nightmare, on a dark, unknown planet. Your mind can't wander for a second. For me, within the clouds of dust, the grease and grit, within the rolling tumult and danger of the stunt people, men and women, I found tremendous courage, but also beauty, caring, and in the end, an artful synchronicity of mind and body and spirit that is almost holy. Even though you can't win an Oscar for being a great stuntman, Gary's grateful to have been a part of this exciting industry. His life as a filmmaker has had twists and turns as crazy as any movie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Kaval the Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that you will subscribe Download and share this on your social media pages and with your family and friends. If you find yourself in a desperate place, it is our desire that you would be able to borrow hope from those who've gone before you and shared their stories. They have exemplified the meaning of Kava, learning to wait during difficult times to find an eventual positive outcome. I can't express my gratitude for my head writer, Rebecca Gray, 
and audio engineer Meredith Douglas. I would not be able to do this without you. For more information, please visit kavathepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.